Thank you. Um, thanks, everyone. Um, this morning, we are continuing in our series on people in prayer, and we've been looking back at, at some of the case studies of how God worked in people's lives, the situations um, where they came to be praying, and, and kind of what we learn about God and his ways through um, how they prayed and how he worked in those situations. And so today we are looking at Esther. And so what I thought we'd do is um, we'll, we'll kind of, we don't have time to read through the whole thing, but what I'm going to do is, is tell you the story, I guess, in a really summarized way to remind us this morning if we um, have read it before or to, to kind of cover that again so we remember what the story is about. And then I think they're just going to have a couple of reflections, but I, I really think that God's going to encourage us this morning through this story. So buckle up. Um, so the book of Esther is set um, more than 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And some of the Jews returned to Jerusalem and many of them didn't. So this story is um, about a Jewish community who are living in Persia. The main characters that we come across, there's two Jews, um, Mordecai and his niece Esther. And he ended up adopting her um, after losing her parents. So and the other two characters that we mainly come across are the king of Persia and a per Persian official called Haman. He's kind of comes across as a bit of the villain of the story. So the story starts with the king of Persia throwing this extremely um, elaborate banquets. And basically they're all about displaying his greatness to show off kind of his his vast wealth and um, of his kingdom. And so it lasts for about 180 days of these um incredible kind of, uh, yeah, over-the-top banquets. And it's on the last day that he, the king is really drunk. And um, he starts bragging about how beautiful his wife is, Queen Vashti. And so he's bragging about this. He's, he's going on about how she's the most beautiful of all. And he demands that she comes to the banquet to show everybody and, and how beautiful she is. And basically, she refuses to do that. And because she, she refuses, then he then banishes her from his presence and removes her from being the queen. And in comes this new thing. It's essentially like um, a royal Persian version of The Bachelor with a beauty pageant that he holds to find a new queen. So about 1,000 virgins from that area come to this beauty pageant. They go through a, um, about a year of beauty treatments and all that, and then they basically have their turn with the king, and he chooses um, who he wants. And so this is where Esther enters the story. So she enters the pageant. Um, Mordecai tells her not to disclose that she's Jewish. Um, and while Esther wins, basically, out of all of those women, the king has favor on her and he's so into her that he makes her the new queen of Persia. And it's after this that Mordecai, her uncle, overhears, he's, he's sort of hanging around the palace and he overhears two of the royal guards plotting to kill the king to take his life. And so he tells Esther, who, who then tells the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. In comes the next character. This is uh, the one that's sort of a bit of the villain, Haman. Now, he's a descendant of the enemy of the Jewish people. And the king elevates Haman to be, you know, in the highest position there can be in the kingdom. And he demands that everybody would kneel before Haman 
but Mordecai refuses to kneel before him, which makes Haman super angry. Um, and when he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish, he persuades the king to enact a decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And Haman and the king roll the dice to decide when the Jews will be killed. And um, it's decided through that that it would take place uh, 11 months later. They would destroy um, all of the Jews. That's a decree that's put in place. So it's not looking too good. And at this point, it seems like Esther and Mordecai are the only hope for the Jewish people. So they make a plan that what they might be able to do is that Esther could reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. Um, But the thing is that approaching the king without um, a royal request is basically an, an act that everybody knew was worthy of death. So she hadn't been summoned to see the king for about a month. So she was um, understandably worried that that plan might be a bit tricky because it might mean that she loses her life. But Mordecai seems to think that Esther was on the throne as queen for a purpose. And it's here that we come across the most well-known of the verses out of Esther. So Esther 4, um, verse 14 And Mordecai says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther responds bravely and decides to go to the king. And some of the other well-known words out of Esther, she says, if I perish, I perish. And she decides to go ahead with this plan. So she hosts a banquet with the king and Haman, and she um, tells them that she wants to request an exclusive banquet with them the following day. And this is where she's going to make the request. So from this first banquet, um, Haman leaves there really drunk. It's quite a theme that they seem to drink a heck of a lot. Um, And he sees Mordecai in the streets. And again, he loses it. He's furious. He's so angry that he orders a really tall stake to be built. And his plan is that Mordecai would be impaled on that uh, the following morning. So things are still not looking great. And it seems like these, um, yeah, Haman especially is sort of getting escalated and, and it's not looking good for the Jewish people. But that night, the king can't sleep. Um, It's a common problem for a lot of people, but um, the king can't sleep. And I guess if you're the king, what you do is you have one of the royal chronicles read to you. So someone comes and reads basically what's happened, stories of, of, yeah, chronicles um, that have happened. And it's in this process of this being read to him that he remembers that Mordecai actually saved his life because he'd overheard the, the guards plotting to kill him. And he'd totally forgotten that Mordecai had saved his life and he, and that he hadn't really honored him for that. So in the morning, um, Haman comes to the king to request that Mordecai is executed, um, impaled on the stake. It's a bit gory, sorry. Um, But instead, there's a twist because the king, having remembered that Mordecai saved his life, um, orders Haman to publicly honor Mordecai um, for saving his life. So Haman then has to lead Mordecai around the city on this royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. So you can imagine that must have been quite a a difficult and humiliating thing for Haman, who thought it was going to be him that would be um, honoured in that way by the king. So Esther has the second banquet and she tells the king um, 
that she's Jewish and that Haman has a decree to murder her, um, to, yeah, to murder her and Mordecai and all the Jews because they have this decree to destroy all the Jewish people. So she lets the cat out of the bag that she herself is Jewish. Um, and again, the king's really drunk um, from this banquet. He orders that actually Haman be impaled on the very stake that was meant for um, Mordecai to be killed on. So it didn't turn out too well for Haman, um, but things are looking up for Mordecai and Esther and for the Jewish people. But the king's decrees, they can't be reversed. It's not possible. So instead, um, the, the decree to destroy all the Jewish people can't be reversed, but instead the king issues a counter decree for all the Jews to defend themselves from their enemies, to destroy their enemies um, when they are attacked. And Mordecai gets elevated to be in a seat beside the king. Um, and essentially the rest of the story is about how the Jews triumph over their enemies and actually end up destroying all those who plotted against them. And Esther and Mordecai then establish this two-day feast to commemorate the deliverance of the Jews. So that, my friends, is a bit of a summary of the story of Esther. And it's quite um, I guess there's lots of paths that we could go down when we're looking at this. And so within this people in prayer series, actually I kind of was thinking about like how, what would be good for us to look at this morning. And there was, there was really just one in a way quite simple thing that stood out to me that I wanted to focus on this morning that I think God wants to encourage us with. The funny thing is that um, I started reading through you know, throughout the week, I was reading the book of Esther and I was like, oh, flip and heck, I've chosen the book where we're in the people in prayer series and it doesn't talk at all about her praying. There are no prayers that we're kind of looking at. How did she pray? Or, And actually, God's never even mentioned once in the entire book. So my literal kind of brain was like, oh, my gosh, like how am I meant to preach about the, you know, being people in prayer when God's not even mentioned? And, you know, good on me that I've like chosen the one that's a bit of a dud. But um, having kind of read a bit more and, and reflected a bit more, actually, the fact that God isn't mentioned um, at all, it's the only book in the Bible where God isn't actually mentioned in the whole entire thing, was what kind of stood out to me as, as being important and bringing something, um, a perspective for us this morning, um, for our times too. So perhaps the fact that God isn't mentioned um, you know, explicitly in the story, or we don't see that um, Esther's praying or talking about prayer in any kind of way. Maybe it's not just that it's an oversight by the author, but maybe it's intentional in making a point. And what might that point be? And in the, you know, in this story, the Jews are in in great danger. People are wanting to kill them and and take their wealth. And so often, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Old Testament, we see. God kind of comes through for his people in these really miraculous ways that you wouldn't, you kind of just know that it must be God. You know, there'll be this, this plague that comes out of nowhere and it's, or there's, you know, the, there's some really kind of crazy miraculous um, acts that happen and you, you know instantly that that's God um, coming through for his people. But here, something in this story, God seems really silent. In a way, he seems absent. He's not mentioned um, yet we have that sense that when we're reading it and it was written, you know, quite a while after the events that happened that actually God is working behind the scenes. 
there's a string of what seems to be like little uh, coincidences or seemingly really ordinary events, little things. So, for example, um, when you see the king is super drunk and he's like bragging about how beautiful Queen Vashti is, we wouldn't kind of see someone like drunkenly bragging about how beautiful their wife is as God intervening or God working or that being an act of, of God, you know, pursuing his purposes. We just wouldn't kind of recognize it as that. Or we wouldn't kind of think that someone happening to overhear a conversation would necessarily be um, a big kind of way that God is coming through for his people. It's a really kind of ordinary thing that we might not give God the credit for in a sense. Or the fact that Queen Vashti refuses to, to come to the banquet. Or the, the fact that it was that Esther just happened to be really beautiful, I guess, and was chosen as given favor um, for her beauty. These are kind of really ordinary things. The fact that the king couldn't sleep and had a bit of insomnia and happened to be reminded of um, the fact that Mordecai had saved his life. These are kind of things that seem like just really ordinary events or in a way could be seen as coincidences. But I wonder for us this morning if the book of Esther tells us that we, you know, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that God is not at work when we might not be able to see exactly what he's up to. Because God is always at work. And, you know, even when we can't see the whole story. And so the message um, is clear, you know, God is sovereign, even when life doesn't make sense. I think that comes through in a story like this. Though seemingly like kind of insignificant or ordinary events um, were, were taking place, God was advancing his purposes. Um, and so for us, it kind of leaves us with some questions maybe about how do we, as God's people, how do we live when God doesn't seem near or when we kind of don't see his activity in the way that we, we might be wanting to or we might hope to? And um, throughout the Old Testament, you know, God raises up so many unlikely people that will be who will be faithful to act. And here we have Esther, who's a young Jewish orphan. She lost her parents and her uncle Mordecai, you know, and her are raised up and end up saving the Jewish people. And one of the other things that kind of stood out was that actually their morals are quite questionable. They're not exalted because of their great morals or they're quite often unfaithful to the laws of the Torah and you know there's a lot of things that are a bit ambiguous in terms of the morals so it's not like they're exalted or God advances his purposes through them because they have perfect behavior or because you know they are special in that way but yet again we see that God gives his grace to people um, regardless he, he works through the mess of humans and um, he works through you know, gives grace to people who don't deserve it. Um, and so in this story, you know, it also shows us, though, that our our actions do matter, um, that we can, you know, Esther was transformed, really. We, she didn't start out as, you know, she, she kind of just started out going along to the pageant and being really compliant and didn't, it wasn't, it's sort of over time we saw that she transformed um, and was, yeah, it was really used by God to advance his purposes, but again, through these really ordinary um, events. So when the event seemed out of control to Esther and to Mordecai, when the king dictated ruin for their people, when evil was poised to triumph, 
God was at work. He worked through their dark days. He worked through their faithful obedience and he worked through their victories. So I wonder for us today if God wants to encourage us through this story for our time too. You know, we, we've talked about it already this morning. We're living in a really confusing and broken world. We're experiencing lots of stuff that, that doesn't make sense. And yet this story reminds us that God is always at work, that he hasn't given up on us, that he never will give up on us, that he is absolutely committed um, to redeeming his world, that he won't abandon his promises, that when he sometimes seems hidden, like in this story, it wasn't obvious um, or even the way that it's been written. It's, it's not obvious that God is there. He's not referred to all the time or kind of things aren't um, explicitly mentioned. Yet God's hiddenness doesn't mean that he's abandoned his people. His um, silence doesn't mean that he's absent. And he is actively working in our lives. He's faithfully um, keeping his promises and he, he's doing that in this, our time as well. So for us, maybe when it's um, extraordinary events, we know that it's him. But in, in really ordinary ways, we might actually miss what he's up to and have no idea that he is working in so many different ways that we might not see. The thing about how the book of Esther was written is it shows like in a literary way that the way that it's written, it shows this pattern of symmetry. And so we have kind of the, the dark pattern of the demise of the Jewish people where it seems like including Esther and Mordecai, um, kind of like evil is winning and things aren't going well. But then there's this pivot and pivot is a word I've grown to hate because of COVID because if you, especially in workplaces or maybe, I don't know, even outside of that, it's just become like we're being told we have to constantly pivot to do things in a new way. So kind of grown to hate that word from overuse. But nevertheless, here we find a very significant pivot happening in this story. And after this, um, actually all the crisis, crises are corrected. Esther and Mordecai are exalted. And there's this symmetry that happens from kind of what was the demise is now the Jewish people are being delivered um, because God is faithful to intervene. You know, it, it seemed like it could just be a random string of co um, coincidences. But when you look at how the, the book is written, you see that pattern is actually showing us that, no, 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 you know, there's a purpose and justice is unfolding. So in this season, I mean, we're, again, we've, we've kind of acknowledged that it's just really hard. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who um, who is finding that, man, it's, it's really hard when you, are looking for what God is doing when you're kind of when you're reaching out and asking him to come and intervene and to change things um, for us personally for us as an, um, a church for us as a nation for us in the whole world all of us are, are really looking and, and hoping that things will be changing for the better yet so often we kind of can probably feel discouraged and even some of the the same, same, same way that we're having to do things, the restrictions, and even with church, it's like, oh, we kind of are like limited to following this format, which in a sense, you kind of can sit back and get a bit discouraged that is God working or what, what is he even doing? And I can't, you know, and it can be really discouraging when, you know, the whole thing of hope deferred makes the heart sick. Like when we're looking and, and we can't see what God's up to, that we can feel, um, 
really discouraged. But something in this um, in this book, I think, reminds us in this story that though we might not be able to see it at the time, you know, we we can be sure that God is always on the move as we would say. Welcome, Hayden. Um, um, there's another kind of pressure. I wonder if I don't know if I'm the only one who feels it, but at the moment it kind of feels like, um, am I meant to know more about kind of what God's up to? Am I meant to have a sense of what God's doing or what God's going to do? Because I feel like I'm just as clueless as the next person, you know. And so there's there's I wonder if there's also this underlying thing that kind of just even a niggly kind of thing, like I'm. And I, you know, we long to see God's kingdom come. Um, we long to see him come into for things to be restored. But we can feel like, yeah, we're, we're not seeing it or we're not sure how that's going to happen. And being people in prayer, maybe for us, you know, and looking at how we, sometimes even in times like this, it's really hard to even know how to pray. Um, and for me, I, I can get a bit stuck because if I'm so focused on, how I'm meant to be praying somehow it becomes about the focus becomes more on me and, and how I'm praying and what I'm meant to be doing. And am I doing it right? Then, then actually on God and, and looking to see with a, an openness to see what he's up to, what he is already doing because yeah. And, and so what's meant um, as, as a, you know, prayer is something that we, we um, can do and, and are encouraged to do, but it can equally become something that is almost, uh, becomes a bit of a stumbling block. In Romans twelve twelve, it says, "Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer." And I wonder if being people in prayer through the lens of this story might mean, you know, simply trusting that God is actively working, whether we see it or not. That He is, you know, we have faith that His purposes are being accomplished. That while we can kind of in one way lean lean back, we also lean forward and we lean into him with this simple opening of ourselves to God, the simple opening of our hearts um, and of our ordinary lives, of the stuff that we might not realize that he's working through. We offer it all to him with this intentionality, not just a, a passiveness that might come with, oh, well, if God's doing stuff all the time, you know, doesn't matter. I'll just sit back and let him do it because he invites us and he, you know he he transforms us and he um when we're aligned with him we we can we are a huge part of how he works to redeem his people and redeem his world and we have the holy spirit interceding for us even when we don't know what to pray or how to pray um you know the holy spirit is is interceding for us which is gosh it's a beautiful thing and i'm so relieved because i think otherwise like say if it relied on me <laughs> saying or doing things a certain way um, would be a bit would be in trouble. But the thing is that you know prayer actually begins with God and it ends with God. That God is the initiator of everything. He even when I kind of come to God and respond to Him, it's because He has initiated um, everything. And so, in a sense, that that brings me a lot of relief that I can be open and I can bring my heart honestly before him but you know focus less on kind of saying or doing the right thing or being perfect or kind of being the savior but actually being honest before him but with intentionality of 
welcoming him even in, in the ordinary things that I might not see as his, him working out his incredible plans um, to restore the world. And he is our father. He's, we are his children. He's, he's the father and he knows us intimately. He knows us better than we know ourselves and he's committed to us. And that is incredibly encouraging because, you know, we, we are known and loved and held by the one who is actively working, who is completely faithful to work out his promises, who is establishing his purposes um, here in us and through us and for us. And we get to simply welcome um, more of him and what he's up to. So I hope, you know, I've, I've personally found it really encouraging to be reminded that God's hiddenness is not his abandonment or that his silence doesn't mean that he's absent, but quite the opposite. You know, when we, when we look at the story of Esther and, and how God has delivered his people, um, we see it through a surprising way, but yet nevertheless, we are encouraged that God is always actively working. And God is here with us um, this morning, and we're going to continue our worship this morning by taking communion, and I'm going to swivel my laptop slightly to the left to Kirsten, who's going to lead us in communion mm -hmm. this morning.